want to start by introducing myself, but before I do that, I want to acknowledge traditional and cultural custodians of the land that I'm on here in Brisbane, but not only here in this part of the state, but across all of Queensland, and pay my respect to elders past and present. Um, I always like to thank my elders for the privileges that I get to work on today, and I get emotional every time I say it, and I, I thank them nearly every day, I think, but I wouldn't be in this job if it wasn't for them and, and their um, leadership that came before me, so I'm very privileged to be here. I'm um, the Chief Aboriginal and Torres Strait Health Officer and Deputy Director General um, that's heading up the new Aboriginal and Torres Strait Health Division. I'm a Yalanji and Tagalaka woman with Italian heritage. I'm proudly come from far north Queensland and um, started off as an Aboriginal health worker and worked in health for um, many years before I had the opportunity to move out to um, other areas and have come back after being away for 10 years. I'm very proud to be back. Aileen, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You are the first Chief Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Officer and you've been in the role for a year now. What's been a highlight of that first 12 months for you? Um, yeah, was when, I, when you gave me that question, it was like, how do you answer that, um, you know, with, with the opportunity was so huge. I had to start with, I think, coming back and returning because I have been away 10 years, so um, re-establishing all my old relationships and um, all the new relationships and listening. I'd given a commitment both when I um, went for the job and was interviewed for the job, but also when I, you know, came back the minister, my first um, commitment was to go out and listen and meet with all the hospital and health services um, to give me an opportunity to reintroduce myself back to health. And um, I visited 13, didn't get to all of them, but visited 13 um, HHSs as we call them, and was very proud to have the opportunity uh, not only to listen to uh, HHSs, but while I was there, I ensured that I met with the Queensland Ambulance service who are part of our portfolio too and very proud um, of the work and the journey they've been on and um, our community controlled, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community controlled health sector. So um, it gave me an opportunity to reconnect. So that was a big part of me returning um, back in October and then at the beginning of the year, as everyone knows, COVID hit. So um, the disruption, as we say, and the opportunity and the challenge that we've got with COVID um, gave me... Um, exceptional opportunity to uh, show how we could respond and manage and I'm really proud of the division and the work that every HHS did in terms of um, managing COVID in our space. So um, it was returning, it was um, responding to COVID, it was um, uh, about ensuring that while we were responding to COVID and, and the challenge that it brought us that we still were able to provide good healthcare and ensuring that all of our systems, because COVID essentially, I don't know if other commentators have said this, and I'm sure they have, COVID has um, given us a challenge and, and showed us some of the challenges we already have in our health system. So we had an opportunity to um, fix some of that up, but ensuring that we had good healthcare. The biggest challenge we had was we had, um, you know, all our remote and discrete communities under biosecurity arrangements where they completely under protection phase where the rest of the state was in containment phase with COVID and they did that very well where we've got no cases in any of the remote discrete communities and only 10 total First Nation cases, most of which were from um, international trips. So uh, uh, that was something that's highlight but attributed to the local leadership that our um, community have done in that space and and in particular the leadership of the mayors and every one of those remote and discrete communities and, and the responsibility that they all took um, during that time and continue to take um, now. And I'm really proud um, 
in the way we engage with the community, the way we actually had our we work with the community control sector to ensure that we got the comms, and the way we continue to um, our plan with our community under COVID. Um, what's the other things that I might think is important, but it's hard to. I think the other big highlight was, you know, I've been away ten years, and I've um, some of the work that I started many decade over a decade ago has come to fruition. So I was really privileged to be able to launch with the minister. Um, the Growing Deadly Families and my very, very first um, piece of policy work that I did as a junior on a leadership program was around maternal child health and looking at birthing and country. So to come back and launch Growing Deadly Families with the minister and, build, you know, and, and the team had done all the work, I, was, um, I felt very privileged to, to be able to be a part of that because um, that one strategy has got the tenets of what's important in all of our work and that's around our people having a voice, the women saying they don't want to continue to repeat their stories, that they want a better coordinated system so their stories don't have to be told, you know, yes. many times um, during their patient journey and um, they want to see our people in the system. So um, being a part of that strategy and now oversighting its uh, implementation is really important. The other big highlight for me was another piece of important work that I'd started, you know, over a decade ago was um, being here to um, sponsor and lead with my other, uh, with um, Barb Phillips. We were able to sign off on the Aboriginal Health Work Force Certified Agreement and the health workers for the very first time getting their own enterprise bargaining arrangement. And I, because I'd led a piece of work around Aboriginal workforce development and health worker career structure, you know, in the early, in the mid, not late 90s. And to come back and be a part of that and help sponsor and lead that piece of work is, um, yeah, it's an absolute privilege. Um, and now the last thing I probably want to say is a big highlight and the opportunity, and not, certainly our minister um, had introduced an health equity reform agenda through amendments that he made to the um, Hospital and Health Services Board Act in um, uh, November last year. That passed wasn't it passed legislation in August this year and that was um, requiring Aboriginal membership on every HHS board and ensuring that every HHS has um, developed health equity strategy. So we had an opportunity to introduce health equity reform very importantly, and I can say this now, I think, is that given the gov- Labor governments came back, um, very importantly, a piece of work that uh, the Minister uh, uh, sponsored was a reform planning group to look at the opportunities that COVID has given us and a big part of the report that they've provided, which is not public yet, but a big part of that is looking at health equity and um, it, it backs in something that he did through legislation last year, the minister, and to progress work in that space is, um, and have the opportunity to start that journey um, is um, yeah, something that I'm feeling really excited about and, you know, I'm hoping that we can make for the first time, you know, some big, big changes. It's been a difficult yet remarkable 12 months. Yes. <laughs> Haylene, how can we as a collective and individuals show leadership and embrace the opportunity to drive health equity across the system? Um, And thanks, Rebecca, for asking that question. And I always go to – I've got three R's that I, um, you know, uh, talk about as as important to any agenda, but in particular health equity and it's around um, relationships. And I talked about that coming back and re-establishing the relationships, but um, having a good relationship – 
with ourselves and having good relationship with others and through partnership and relationships, you know, you can make a big, big difference and particularly at the important time of actually making some changes and embracing a new opportunity. Um, the thir- second R that I talk about is responsibility and that's taking responsibility. I always talk about self-responsibility first being and working out what your responsibility is in the opportunity that present but also working with others and in being clear about what each of our responsibilities are both collectively and individually and um, have, and through the relationships you have you can actually work that and make that um, strong. And then the last one, which is, you know, none of these three R's have got any more importance than the other, was um, is respect. And again, starting with yourself and importantly having respect for yourself and others. And for me, it not only goes to others and the, and the stakeholders that you're having relationship with and the partnerships you establish, but the big one for us is that um, respect and recognition of our First Nations People and in Queensland we have two First Nations, and I know there isn't consistent views on how we refer to Aboriginal and Torres Strait people. So I'll take an opportunity to say that that respect and that recognition of the two First Nations in Queensland—that is both the Aboriginal people on mainland Queensland and the Torres Strait Islander people of the Torres Strait, so our two First Nations in Queensland, unlike any other jurisdictions—and um, having the respect for them as First Nations and the role that they play in a health equity agenda is going to be incredible and it's important that we start from from that recognition and we have outside of the health portfolio an opportunity because this government that's returned now has actually signed up for tracks to treaty and the whole country's embarking on a treaty agenda you may think well what role does health play in this space and we play a big role because we're a big portfolio and and in terms of the role we play with treaty and an equity agenda is going to be really important to the foundations of a treaty agenda and where we're going with that. Hey, Lynn, you mentioned about the need to employ First Nations people at all levels of the system. Yep. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, that's probably my number one agenda. Um, I hope the Director-General doesn't mind me quoting him, but um, he asked me when I started and a couple of times, both my individual catch-up and I think it might have been in an executive leadership planning session, what is the one thing you would do if you were to run one thing? It's always difficult to answer that because there is no one single thing that makes a difference. But I have for over a decade advocated for having Aboriginal strong people in the system from gardeners to surgeons. Mm-hmm. That's what I've said for a long time and I still believe in that. I still believe that our people being in every level, across every stream, you know, in leadership positions, in clinical positions, in administrative positions and in support roles, everywhere throughout the system is going to make a big difference because it brings with it simple cultural capability by having people throughout the system and it brings with it, um, gives our people jobs and, you know, with jobs you and if you're economically well placed, you can do a lot of things by getting education and afford to do many things including accessing good health care um, and it makes a difference in terms of the way the service health care is provided just by having Aboriginal people throughout the whole system. So um, it's a journey that I'm really excited to be a part of uh, in terms of how we might actually build into the exist the amendment to the regulation that might require through the um, health equity strategies um, co- well there's two things there that's one is about having our people in the healthcare system. And if we can get in the regulation, it'll be really exciting. But the other thing is um, 
having co-design and what I'm saying now is co-design and development, co-implementation, co-ownership with our people as well. So it's not only having our people in the system but it's also having the relationship with our First Nations. So, yeah, definitely one of my – it's the big priority that I'm going to be um, pushing for is having Aboriginal people throughout the whole system. And if I can go a little bit further, um, I think it's equally as important if this government is going to be signing up to a treaty agenda to um, have Aboriginal people – throughout each portfolio because the government itself is going to have to have a level of cultural capability to engage with First Nations people in this state and to do that they're going to have to have no no understand themselves to actually have that um, um, ability to progress a really important and critical agenda. And Hayling, can you tell us a little about the importance for First Nations people of being loved and valued and the links to wellbeing? Oh, um Another thing that's very important to me <laughs> and um, I used to think that I used to talk to my family about, you know, the importance of ourselves as individuals and, you know, I think the very um, central tenet to health is about being loved. Um, I'm saying it more publicly now and I think that's about, I think every person, if you, they're loved and valued absolutely from in utero, <laughs> um, you just, you know, you it makes a big difference in terms of um, your future and your what's, what's possible. Um, everyone's loved and valued. I, I've got a view that um, when we, unfortunately, you know, many of our people, all of us, um, are missing elements of that either through whatever's happened to us early in our lives, um, seek to be loved and valued through, I think it translates into um, challenges around, um, you know, wanting to uh, fill our that that um, void. I'm trying to say something that's appropriate here without <laughs> saying the wrong things, but filling the void inside us with these substances or you know other things that's actually tried to say, how do I make myself feel okay again? And I think it's a central tenet of mental health is if we can't, you know, get each person has to feel like they're valued within themselves and love themselves. Very important. Even just if we go on about that as, as a group of people getting off the individual and having an environment where that when an individual can get to a point of being loved and valued and actually have really good health and well-being within themselves as a collective of our people is um, that connection to culture and the importance that our mob see with that connection and, and, and connection to culture is our land and our language and... Um, I was really privileged to be a part of um, a journey in New South Wales where they took a language legislation through and passed um, in New South Wales and the recognition of our our culture and who we are and incorporating and embedding that into a system of healthcare will make a big difference and that's why having our people in the system makes a big difference but it, I'd love to have an opportunity where we can... Um, play a part in getting um, our language returned to our people in Queensland. Um, we do have language policy and uh, that's important, but it'd be good if we could get some um, strengthened um, return of that whole agenda. I think it'll be incredibly important to our health and well-being um, and, and, and the future of our mob terms of what that might mean. Yeah. And Haleen, the, the three principles in the Growing Deadly Families report, can you guide us through those? So um, one of the things that women said um, repeatedly was about having um, a voice in the system and that goes to ensuring that our people, again, are not only in the healthcare provision side of things but are a part of the governance arrangement. So our First Nations voice are really important to ensure that 
um, every part of the decision making and how we set ourselves up that we have First Nations voice. So we're very fortunate that the, the Director General had embarked with his um, new appointment two weeks before I started last year in October, had embarked on a journey of establishing a, a governance arrangement, strengthening the existing governance arrangement and particularly um, building on the networked governance that we have because we now have a Department of Health that is supported by hospital and health services that have their individual um, responsibility. So we've set up a um, three-tiered uh, governance system. It's a big, you know, Queensland Health as a collective is a big um, organisation and a big part of a big system. So um, what we've successfully done, and the Director-General's leadership here, I will acknowledge, um, he requested that to ensure that we had First Nations voice on every part of that, those three tiers and every committee that we're establishing. But not only as representative, we're trying to ensure, and I certainly have at the tier two, I've got a First Nations Health Improvement Advisory Committee. It's only met twice. I'm co-chairing with um, the, the current CEO, acting CEO of Quake, the Queensland Aboriginal Island Health Council. Council um, and I think that co-chairing, and we've also got co-chairing arrangement in, on one of our tier two committees. And I'm ensuring that not only we've got a co-chair, but we also have a representative. And we've ensured that um, First Nations representation is through a consumer voice on all the committees, but also the um, community control health sector voice, which together um, brings strengthens it. We've only am starting to um, establish most of those committees, so they they're they're new. And the other important thing around voice is um, is having and going to Growing Deadly Families, we've got a committee that we've obviously established, a governance committee to oversight um, that strategy and we're ensuring we have a co-chairing arrangement as well there with the community control sector and um, it'd be good, good good to get to the point where um, it was a First Nations led and I'll just make one more comment that on the back of the Growing Deadly's um, element of voice is um, ensuring that we have system leadership, what I call my, my appointment and this role, which is going to be important embedding this in going forward, um, is, is important to have system leadership and our voice in, in at leadership positions throughout the system as well. The second thing the Growing Deadly Families talked about is, you know, having to come into a system and repeatedly tell their story. So we have to set up uh, a, a way, a models of care that actually ensures that the story doesn't have to be told, you know, more than once that we've, we're doing our care for the patient in a more coordinated way and health equity reform is um, providing us an opportunity to explore um, models of more patient-centred cares and we're looking at that in far north Queensland and north Queensland about how we, in, for example, and only one part of the system, connect our HHSs with the community control sector to provide a better coordinated system of care um, for our patients. And the third element that the um, Growing Deadly Families does talk about, and I've taken the opportunity to elaborate on the whole three, um, is um, seeing our people everywhere, which I think I've already spoken to, and that's about you know having our um, people in the workforce, some gardeners to surgeons, um, yeah. is what I always talk about. Yeah. yeah. Haylene, if we look ahead to 2025, what change do you want to have seen in the health and care of our First Nations people? Oh, well, that's an easy one to answer. I definitely want to see our people everywhere through the whole system. I'm hoping that by then we we are, you know, we are in every part of the system that, that we're very um, evident and that we exist. I also think on the back of that, the second thing I want to, I hope that to see is a First Nations-led, Aboriginal-led um, healthcare um, provision um, across Queensland would be great. 
and a return to language and culture um, embedded within a healthcare system. And that's broad statements, but yeah, if I can see our people everywhere and I can see that it's been led by First Nations people and I think I will say, I, I just happened to listen to Fiona Stanley last night, Lee Knight, who's been working with our mob for a long time and she, her and both Norman Swan gave a call out to the to our people and the, and the proof of the role that um, our people have played by being a part and leading the response to COVID and the difference it's made by the sheer fact that we don't have, you know, huge numbers in this country mm. um, goes to why we want our people in the system, why we want to see them there and why we want Aboriginal Australian and First Nations-led healthcare. Yeah, it's critical, isn't it? Yep. Hey, Lene, you started your career as a nurse. What drives you to work in healthcare for our First Nations people? Um, and thank you. And I actually might say that I started off as an Aboriginal health worker um, with Ruth Chopper and Aboriginal Medical Service. Very proud to have started uh, my journey there and only, and only became a nurse because I really loved the providing the care and the role that I had as an Aboriginal health worker. But back then there was nowhere and I knew it was important to be trained. There was no formal training. So I pursued a career in nursing so that I could get formal qualifications and became a midwife as well. So um, my journey as a health worker was an important start of it. And um, and as I said, I've been out of health for 10 years and I've come back to, to you know, to be privileged to be a part of this role in the first time. And to be honest, I did not think I would come back to health, but um, the reason why I'm working for government, I'll say, and the reason why I got into the administrative side of things in health first and continued to play um, administrative roles in government is I wanted to play a part of changing the very policies that have dictated my father's life. Getting emotional at that point, but... um, it's really, and I think I, on my day one of coming back to this job, I held up. You know, I still have I have both my dad and my auntie's um, original certificate of exemption, and past policies have um, dictated what, how, what and how and when and where and um, our mob lived. And I wanted to be a part of a system to change that, and I still want to do that. So that's that's why it's really important. The second thing is. I gave a big consideration, not only the exciting opportunity that this role brought, but the importance that health as a portfolio plays. And if you look at the World Health Organisation and what it talks about, particularly inequity agenda, it is a big portfolio. It can make a big difference in the world, and it is. And COVID is giving us that opportunity, not only how we're not responding well, but where we are responding well. Health in itself plays a big role, and um, it can play a big role economically by employing Aboriginal people throughout the whole portfolio. So I've come back um, wanting to reinvigorate that whole, those, all those agendas again, mm. um, you know, not, a, not only the policies but getting our people in the system and um, we can make a big difference in, in a, you know, in a portfolio. Um, we can make a big difference to, to all the other portfolios and we can play a big, big role, for example, in, a, in um, agendas like treaty. Um, people might not think that because we're in health. But um, by the sheer fact of we, if we can show how we can um, um, have good health cultural brokers throughout a system and be a part of that journey with First Nations and Aboriginal communities in Queensland, um, yeah, it's a big reason why I'm here. So, Aileen, your dad has obviously played a very important role in your life. Can you tell us a little more about him? Oh, um, that's going to be hard without getting emotional. So, um, Dad, I don't know whether I should say this publicly, but... Um, I think it's just him 
being is always um, he's, he's the youngest of nine. Um, really proud family. Um, that my whole family's played a big role in health. Um, my two aunties established Mukai Rosie in uh, Mukarazi by Bayan in, in Cairns. Um, so him and his siblings have played a big role in health portfolio. Um, there's a story that I tell about Dad. It's around the policies that control his life but um, and how he managed it as a kid and, and then replicated, I suppose, um, the tenacity to um, do the right thing throughout his life and, and that is when, when children, and I, I think I've got the story right, but when children got the age of school age, they were... They were taken off the parents, so they were living already. Um, his parents were removed and and put into a mission. It was Mona Mona Mission, and with the children, even though they lived in the mission, children when they got to school age were removed off the families and put into the dormitories. And what my dad used to do um, was sneak out at night and lie next to his mother, and then sneak back in. So um, I think that sort of tells you the sort of person he is and it wasn't to break the rules but I think, you know, that goes to him actually getting the loving and nurturing that he needed at that young age and that was by simply lying next to his mother and very proud that he um, didn't drink or smoke in his life, unfortunately, even though he didn't drink or smoke. He um, he suffered with diabetes and um, renal failure now is on dialysis which we never thought would happen to him because he didn't drink or smoke and has lost his um, has lost one of his legs, his um, right leg, and continues to be positive every day of his life. Aileen, thank you for sharing that with us. It's absolutely beautiful. You're a special person, and we're very lucky to have you in this role. And thank you for talking with us today. Thank you.